Hello and welcome to this Radio Stockton podcast. There's a Christmas advert on TV at the moment that appears to sanitise the effects of loneliness. It's for a department store, I'm not sure which one, and it features a little girl staring up at the moon and seeing her granddad. Clearly the metaphor is a good one. The isolation of loneliness feels like you're living on another planet, a cold, desolate, lifeless planet. And the music played is Oasis's Half the World Away. Again, a good sonic metaphor, lonely folk not only feel detached from the world, but also, as the song title suggests, half the world feels like this in reality, and especially so at Christmas. Now, I've no issue with the sentiment about the advert, it's the sanitised happy ending that suggests lonely folk only require a gift sent to them. I reckon they need much more than this. Anyway, rant over. Seeing as this is my Christmas podcast, I thought I'd devote much of it to a story called Silent Night. That's Night with a K. The main male character is called Night and watches over lonely people from a distance to ensure that they don't suffer. The story is set in the near future and suggests a dystopian vision of England after the Second English Civil War. A civil war brought on by the huge austerity measures in place at the moment. So get yourself a Christmas drink in hand and sit back. Chapter 1, Tuesday, 8.03pm It hadn't snowed in December for decades. The last time was before the 2017 English Civil War. Tonight, however, a monochrome Manchester sky was heavy with thousands of independent flakes falling in swirling, silent circles that formed a unified white blanket that smothered all below. It was Christmas Eve, and a girl in her early twenties, wearing an elegant warm coat, emerged from a bright city centre doorway and stepped out onto a cold, dark, relatively remote, snow-covered square. Her hair, short and dark like the winter solstice, quickly soaked through, and her snow-smeared glasses partially distorted her vision. She didn't know it, but she had been drugged. She pulled her cashmere coat tight around her shoulders to cut out the chill. As she rolled her collar up, 
she was being watched by a man in a wet anorak hidden in a boarded-up betting shop doorway 30 metres across the empty square. Ten metres to his left, a stray dog urinated against a statue before scampering through the snow, chasing a rat down the side street towards New Parliament Circus. The man wasn't distracted. He only watched the girl. Flickering the word revolution, a buzzing neon sign behind the girl illuminated her outline and, to the watching man shivering in his anorak, it created the illusion of a halo around her silhouette. A moment later, the heavy door behind the girl slammed like a prison cell and short, slap-back reverberations bounced about the high-walled buildings, breaking the city silence like sarcastic applause. The slam quickly died away, its sound smothered by falling snow and deflected by statues of dead politicians made of stone. The deadened sound was followed by the light from the door's frosted window being snuffed out as its curfew blind was pulled down like a closing eyelid. Whatever happened outside in the night could now be ignored. The unaffected would be unconcerned. A moment later, the neon light above the doorway flicked out too. As it did, an adjacent street sign indicating Cameron Square was doused in darkness. December was Manchester's state-imposed dark month, a result of countrywide rolling austerity cutbacks. If Mancunians wanted city centre street lighting in December, they had to individually pay for it. The only free light available shone out from security-shuttered shop windows. There were no retail shops now on Cameron Square. They were long gone. During winter, therefore, it was dark and deserted at this time of night. Public transport always stopped at 7pm. Unless there was a good reason to be here, it wasn't wise to stay. Pretty much everyone left long before 8pm, even when celebrating Christmas Eve. In the dying December darkness, the girl's poor eyesight meant she peered at her phone over the top of her glasses to check the time. It was 8.04pm and she started to feel the first effects of a narcotic she didn't know was in her blood. Understandably, she assumed the incipient dizziness was a result of drinking more champagne than intended. Consequently, despite the chill wind, she felt her face getting hot. By contrast, standing outside the now darkened bar made her feet cold and wet. The only constant is change. That's true about life, and it's true about the climate. The climate has been constantly changing since the Earth was formed 4.6 billion years ago. The unusual weather conditions meant she now stood in deep snow in expensive but impractical heels 
as the first insidious waves of nausea gnawed at her like rats trapped in a coffin and rolled over her like a drowning sea. seven-year-old on his doorstep last Monday horrified the country. But there are fears there could be more violence in the area. And I'm from Manchester. Don't really know, to be fair. Located on a corner of the square, like all state-controlled bars in the capital, the ironically named Revolution obeyed the government's strict 8pm alcohol curfew. As a result, any customers remaining after the 7pm public transport cut-off point would need to find an alternative, safe way home. Police have indirectly linked the shooting last week with the murder of July, but they haven't said how. Once labelled Salford's Mr. Big, the girl slid the phone back into her pocket and, mesmerised by the unusual and intense December snow, looked up into the sky to try and steady her swirling vision. The blizzard turned into a blur, and another icy chill cut at her now perspiring neck. She needed to get home quickly. She was becoming disorientated. Although now dizzy, she looked around for the best route home. Glancing down a side road between two buildings, the girls saw reassuring, slow-moving objects in the distance a few metres above the top of the highest buildings. These slow-moving, flying objects threw expensively rented beams of narrow light down onto the ground and illuminated the pavements of those wealthy enough to pay. Dependent on point of view, from this distance... They either looked like bars on a cell door or angels watching over the chosen. Now gone past 8pm, the girl had to decide how to get home. She would have to walk, of course. There was no alternative now at this time of night. However, she had more immediate worries. Her forehead and neck were burning. Her stomach was twisting and turning. There was nobody around to help her. Suddenly, she felt intensely dizzy and the gnawing nausea threw her down onto her knees and made her vomit into the snow. Whilst leaning on her hands in the now yellowed snow, the evening replayed in Emily Stretton's mind. And now this is our payback because they can't do nothing to us today. The police can't do nothing. So it's, it's a lack of freedom acting it, like do whatever you want today. Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at the sight, glory stream from heaven afar, heavenly hosts sing alleluia, Christ the Saviour is minimum of four weeks and then approximately a quarter from the initial uh, research that I've seen are just disappearing, they're leaving and we don't know if they're getting into work. That's an absolute indictment on this government's uh, policy and it's a little bit worrying if we're trying to tout it internationally as a real success story. Well, can I just say I don't agree with any of that. Chapter 2 Tuesday, 6.10pm. 
Despite taking her out to Revolution to celebrate her recent promotion, Emily's work friends from the newspaper had left early to catch the last tram. The newspaper office was a short walk away and, although not being particularly central to the city, it was convenient after work. Left on her own, whilst waiting to meet her younger sister Daisy, Emily had stayed until closing time after becoming caught in conversation with an older man who wasn't her type. Her brother had introduced the man to Emily before he stumbled onto another bar. Hey Em, meet my new best mate, her brother slurred. He says he's a photographer. Ha, bloody lightweight drinks like one. He raised a full glass of champagne up to the ceiling in mock salute. Emily was embarrassed to notice her brother's silk shirt was wet, no doubt from spilling alcohol on himself throughout the day. Oh, Sebastian, you're very drunk, Emily responded before adding, as usual, under her breath. She sat down dejectedly on an unexpectedly empty stool at the bar and placed her clutch bag next to the cigarette machine. Sebastian replied, Ha ha, yes I am. You know my motto, don't get too sober. Anyway, I'm going to Westminster's now to let any lucky sod have me, even if he's a lefty. Oh, have you seen De- Still standing, although not steadily, Sebastian paused mid-sentence, looked at Emily's head, and then over towards the window. Your hair's soaked. I didn't realise it was raining. How long have you been drinking? Have you been here all day again? It's not raining. It's snowing. It has been for hours. Snow? But it's December. Wow, I definitely need to make a move. With an exasperated shake of her head, Emily said, Sebastian, you need to go home. You'll feel rough at dinner tomorrow. Cause an argument with Dad and... Oh, just please don't ruin it. Again, you know he won't keep inviting you over for Christmas. Please go home. Look, I put the slow cooker on this morning. It'll be ready by the time you get back to the flat. Here's the passcode. I know you'll have forgotten it. Emily passed a piece of paper to Sebastian with six numbers written on it. Even when at Eton, Sebastian had never liked being told how to behave. Perhaps to show his stubbornness, he thrust his non-champagne-carrying hand into his jacket pocket. You're kidding! Westminster's is the only place in Manchester granted a late licence. They donated to Father's Battle Fund to get it. But I have to be there before seven to get in, so I'm off. Oh, by the way, uh, this is... Sebastian paused mid-sentence again. Actually, I've forgotten your name, mate. Before the forgotten man got a chance to respond, turning sharply, Sebastian quickly pulled his hand from his pocket. He needed to steady himself as he seemed to momentarily lose balance when another customer pushed past him. Despite his alcohol-ravaged weight, Sebastian leaned heavily on Emily's arm, spilling champagne down the front of her shirt. Ouch! Mind out, Sebastian. Your keys are sharp. Shit. Sorry, sis, he replied, clasping her arm. Anyway, did I tell you my mate here is a photographer? You could give him a job at your rag now you're in charge. Anyway, I'm going before it's too late to get into Westminster's. I'll see you tomorrow at Dad's. If I get lucky, I'll not be home tonight. Say, hey, what you say?
spend some change for me. It's so cold here in our home. It's Christmas on Emily glared at him, but Sebastian seemed oblivious. He pulled out a 200 euro coin from his pocket. As he did, he lost his balance again and slumped once more against Emily's arm. Steadying himself with his left hand, he put the coin on the bar with his right hand and said, Pay my tab for me, Em. I need to go or I'll not get in. Emily clasped her arm and rubbed it. Her drunken brother's collision had caused her a sharp pain like a tight pinch. At that moment, the barman picked up the coin and put it on the forgery scanner. That's okay. It's clean. I'll get your change. Coins or credit chip, miss? Emily turned around to Sebastian to ask him, but he was nowhere to be seen. He'd gone and left the barely introduced photographer with her. Chapter 3. Tuesday, 6.16pm. Despite initial awkwardness, they talked easily and Emily felt relatively safe with him in the busy bar. In fact, she had become so relaxed after the first drink, she didn't mind when he suddenly said, Merry Christmas, and photographed her with his phone without asking. Yes, he was older than her, but Emily liked his soft voice and hard eyes. He reminded Emily of her father, and, despite automatically regarding him as being her social inferior, she thought his name, Daniel Code, was that of an educated man. His accent also suggested there was more to him than his cheap clothes. In this respect, her intuition was correct. Daniel Code was indeed an intelligent man. For five years, starting not long before the 2017 English Civil War, Daniel had been a teacher. He wasn't a teacher now, because many professions were cut to the bone as post-war austerity measures were introduced. It became impossible for ordinary people to live on a professional salary. Also, to exacerbate this, the government introduced a national service that ensured all but the richest had to serve. As a consequence, the privileged classes bought their way to the top of all professions. As the evening wore on, Daniel Code spoke to Emily about photography, the unusual December snow, politics, and, quite briefly, his daughter. She's about the same age as you, he said, before glancing at his watch. I never know if this old antique is right, he softly laughed. At my age, I always forget to convert. I still use the old time. Sorry, I'd better get going. I'd get you another drink before I go, though. Will you be okay to get home on your own? Yes, no worries, replied Emily. My sister is meeting me here. She always carries a spare torch. I think she gets them free from her hospital. That's true about life, and it's true about the climate. The climate has been constantly changing since the Earth was formed. Chapter 4, Tuesday, 6.53pm Despite not being attracted to him, 
Code's quite abrupt departure had mildly offended Emily. His loss, she said to herself, as she now found herself alone in a bar for just under an hour. First, her brother had left her here. Then, Code had left her. Ordinarily, rather than stay in a bar on her own, she would have gone home at this point too. Unlike Sebastian, she didn't drink too much. Tonight, however, their younger sister had promised to meet them in revolution to celebrate Emily's recent promotion. Daisy was late, and, consequently, Emily drank a little more than usual to kill time. Besides, it would be a waste to leave the virtually full bottle of champagne Sebastian had abandoned in his rush to drink through the night at Westminster's. Emily hadn't seen her sister in more than seven months, not since their father had paid Daisy's required 19,000 euro national service substitution fee. As a result, Daisy had legally avoided the compulsory two-year army service fighting Scotland. Instead, she trained in an Anglesey hospital as a fast-track NHS limited doctor. The 19,000 euro substitution charge bought her the rank of senior doctor, even whilst only attending rudimentary training. Of course, the system was financially weighted to favour those that could afford it. After Code left her alone at the bar in Revolution, Emily sat looking at her drink, unaware most customers were leaving and making their way towards the last of the 7pm taxis. Whilst waiting, Emily momentarily wondered why Daisy hadn't turned up. She guessed Daisy had been understandably unable to get away from Anglesey, owing to the unexpected heavy snowfall. Tomorrow, they had a lot of catching up to do at the family home. Emily smiled to herself. Her smile faded, though, as she worried about Sebastian and the following day's Christmas dinner disaster he'd once more likely cause. Waiting, she gazed at the bubbles in her glass as they floated to the surface that, once there, inevitably popped. She thought about how, owing to her father's political position, she'd fought off colleagues to inevitably rise to the surface to become editor of her newspaper. Now promoted, she felt ashamed at the method she'd used. She looked vacantly into the glass and sipped its contents until the 8pm street siren sounded outside that signalled Manchester's alcohol curfew. She got up, pulled on her cashmere coat, quickly gulped down the champagne, headed for the door and stepped out into the snow-covered square's ice-cold grip. She felt hot. Although she thought otherwise, she wasn't the last to leave. Chapter 5, Tuesday, 8.09pm. 
After vomiting, Emily got up from her knees and moved further from the doorway and into the dark Christmas Eve night. The sudden disparity of temperature between the warmth of the bar and the cold of the square made her cheeks red and tinged her lips light blue. She'd left her walking stick inside Revolution and wouldn't be able to retrieve it until after Boxing Day. Ordinarily, this wouldn't be a problem because eight months after her accident, she only carried it now out of habit and for protection. Even though the intense nausea had passed, Emily still felt lightheaded. Without her walking stick, she steadied herself by clutching at the branches of an artificial Christmas tree to her left. Whilst holding it for a few moments, she became entranced by the beauty of the whirling white specks now falling heavier from the December sky. It was far from a blizzard, but tonight's snowfall had intensified and she immediately needed to wipe her distinctive and expensive round glasses with her gloved left hand. As she circled the glass with one finger, the left lens remained stubbornly smeared. To exacerbate her blurred vision, her focus still shimmered from the effects of the champagne. As a consequence, even though the intensity of the falling snow increased, it was difficult to clearly make out individual white flakes against the deep black night. As a newspaper reporter, it wasn't the first time she hadn't seen clearly and, subsequently, written a distorted view. Her high temperature from a few minutes ago had now reduced considerably. She vacillated from one heel to the other, trying to keep warm. She hadn't felt this cold in December since she was seven when the relentless annual winter rain finally forced her father to migrate the Stretton family north to the new capital from the southern wetlands. After much political manoeuvring, Manchester had become the capital of England as a symbolic gesture not long after the four-month civil war ended. Of course, the fact that much of southern England was consistently flooded during winter played its part too. Parliament had little choice. It had to relocate. The 2022 Great Flood of London had trapped and drowned thousands in the underground stations between Putney Bridge and Westminster. Now, in Manchester, the new capital of England, the acute energy crisis meant the only road vehicles allowed after 7pm were those belonging to the emergency services. December was Manchester's dark month, as electricity was rationed across England. Mansfield would face its month of darkness in January. After 7pm, there were no taxis, trains or trams allowed. Ostensibly, this was a government directive to conserve energy. Some argued, however, it was a strategy to force people to pay for government alone drones or LYR machines. Chapter 6, Tuesday, 8.11pm Despite her continued circling on the left lens of her glasses with her gloved finger, 
it remained smeared and, consequently, forced Emily to focus with her right eye. As a result, she squinted across the dark square looking for a light your route pay machine that, once paid for and programmed with an address, would map out and illuminate the appropriate lights on the six streets she would walk on her way home. The quickest route was only three streets, but wasn't safe after the curfew. Emily spotted the familiar LYR illuminated logo on a machine diagonally across Cameron Square, but, as she approached it, realised it had been vandalised. Oddly, it had only been damaged. There was none of the ubiquitous anti-government graffiti. Only the card payment slot had been damaged. Something had been jammed in it to stop it working, and there were no further LYR machines within sight. <sighs> oh well. It'll save me 295 euros, she mumbled to herself, and resigned herself to walking home on the unlit, snow-covered roads. Anyway, it was possible someone else would have used a different LYR to light his or her route home and, coincidentally, illuminate some of the same six streets. She was apprehensive, but the champagne had reduced her nervousness of walking home on her own. Nevertheless, despite willing to pay 295 euros for an LYR machine, she was reluctant to pay 800 euros for an alone drone to fly above her monitoring and tracking her from just above the buildings. Yes, it would illuminate her route, record her movements with one camera, and search ahead with another camera. But she felt a day's pay was far too expensive for the three-kilometre journey. Besides, it was very rare these days to hear about incidents with the type of person her father's wealth and position had taught her to stigmatise. Shuddering, perhaps from the cold, she turned and started the walk home. She crunched and compressed the snow beneath her high heels whilst shielding her face from the icy wind with her gloved right hand. It made conclusively identifying her from a distance difficult, more so in the dark. That said, even up close, it was hard to tell her age other than she was in her early twenties. In fact, she looked like any other politician's daughter. The earlier nausea made a momentary return, so she paused by an all-night chemist with posters in the window offering discounts on vitamin tablets, batteries and photography services. Her phone vibrated in her pocket. After removing her left glove, Emily slid the phone from her coat pocket to view a Christmas Eve video message from her father. See you tomorrow, he said. Bring a nice red, but make sure he's blue. She grimaced at how her father never tired of making the same joke. And if you're out, please use an LYR. Put it on my expense account. The PM is too distracted at the moment to notice. Emily smiled. It took her mind off the nausea as she continued the journey home while clutching the phone tightly in her left hand. She used its battery to provide partial light as she pointed its torch at her feet. The snow fell faster and harder now and made walking in her expensive shoes increasingly difficult. As she crunched along the penultimate street, Emily was distracted by the beep of a text message coming through. She drew her phone up to eye level to read it as she continued walking. It was from Daisy. Sorry, it simply read. The phone's faint light reflected in Emily's glasses and momentarily illuminated her face. She started to text a reply. As she typed her response, she was oblivious to the fact she was approaching someone. 
As each distracted step brought her closer, a man watched her intently from inside a bus shelter halfway along the other side of Freedom Road. He held a paper photograph at eye level in ungloved hands. Without moving his head, his eyes flicked between the photograph and what he could see of her across the dark road. The glasses and hair and coat were right. But why wasn't she limping? He couldn't be certain it was Emily Stretton and, consequently, pushed himself further back into the darkness of the bus shelter and watched her pass. Chapter 7, Tuesday, 8.34pm To ensure Emily hadn't been inadvertently followed by other Christmas revellers, whilst he had taken the shorter route to get ahead of her, 53-year-old Daniel Code shivered in the bitter doorway and waited. It was important there were no witnesses. He heard laughter in the distance, but Code felt certain the couple weren't approaching this street and, therefore, he gambled they hadn't seen Emily. He futilely pushed his now numb hands deep into his wet anorak pockets, pulled his hood tighter and stood slowly rocking from one foot to the other for over twenty minutes, before retracing his steps back towards Salford Tollbridge. If he was to have another opportunity on New Year's Eve, Code needed to be certain of not having been seen. Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve were the only two days of the year Emily couldn't make use of her father's chauffeur. By the time Code felt confident, he had waited long enough not to have been followed or accidentally filmed by a free, Google-sponsored data mining alone drone In the distance, he heard St. Margaret's church clock chime ten times to indicate midnight and headed towards it. Even after all this time, Code didn't like days being divided up in this manner. Decimal time, in his opinion, was an idiotic initiative idealistically introduced to symbolise equality after the Civil War ceasefire. It wasn't that Code thought making an hour 72 minutes long instead of 60 confusing. After all, he had once been a maths teacher. It was simply that he felt it was another facile concession drawn up by out-of-touch politicians that promised much but delivered nothing of any value. It was now 10.03 and the relentless snow had eased a little. Code pulled down his hood as he approached the unnamed toll bridge that charged only those on foot, or, in other words, those who could least afford it, the unemployed. Code knew he would need to attempt casual respectability for the remote-operated camera, so he rubbed his numb fingers through his hair, short and dark like his temper, and pulled out his unemployed debit card. Code realised later the mistake he made was not noticing his numb fingers also inadvertently pulled out the photograph of Emily, from his wet anorak pocket and it dropped into the snow where it remained buried until the first week of January when the ice finally started to melt. Chapter 8, Tuesday, 9.07pm It was a relief for Emily to be home and, although she hadn't been scared on the 15-minute walk, 
she would admit to feeling apprehensive. She had felt someone watching her, but dismissed it as her knowledge of the alone drones. The cold of the snow, however entertainingly unusual in December, had made her hands and feet cold. With her gloves removed in preparation, Emily stepped up to her doorway, put her security key in the lock, lightly pressed her right thumb against the scanner and entered December's six-digit passcode. The door clicked open and light flooded out from within and momentarily illuminated the 200-year-old oak tree across the road that, during the hot months, obscured the view from her bedroom window towards the run-down suburb of Warrington, about 30 kilometres to the west. The security door gently closed behind her, trapping and cocooning the heat and light once more. Emily carelessly flung her coat over the banister and shouted up the stairs, "'Anyone home? Are you in? Sebastian?' There was no answer from her brother, so, drawn by the aroma emanating from the slow cooker, Emily kicked off her cold and wet shoes and walked into the warm kitchen. She hadn't eaten since before 4 p.m. Yeah, it seemed like this was their night of revenge. And now this is our payback because they can't do nothing to us today. The police can't do nothing. So it's, it's the lack of freedom after they want to do what they want. Where are you going? Scully? Scully? Scully. Scully? Don't know what you're asking. Well, oh, well, the taxpayer was paying her for God's sake. We're not standing. Um, a scanner, one minute, let me go. Yeah, I'll show you. There's a scanner. 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 There's a scanner.